Well, first of all, I just um, want to tell you how proud I am of you. I feel a little bit like a dad t talking to his children, but um, last week we obviously had the fall fair without our senior pastor, nor his wife that does a ton of organization behind the scenes. And instead of falling apart, things were actually really good. And I remember at the moment I was standing there with Ken, we just kind of looking out over you guys, and he said, this is a good place to be. This is truly what the body of Christ is all about. Because you know, in regard regardless of how much we love Pastor James and his family, the church is bigger than Pastor James. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than Pastor Aaron. It's really God taking a group of people and working with them and working through them. Same thing has happened with this, um, with this connection program that I already forgot, Bridge something that, uh, that James has been using to keep us updated uh, about the status of him and his family and Katie. And um, I've been looking at some of the things that you guys have been writing and I could not have been more proud of you. I'm still not very much in tune with social media. Uh, it sounds like I'm a really old guy. I kind of feel like I'm reading other people's mail when I look there. <laughs> but it was great, and it lifted my spirit uh, a lot. And I'm sure it did the same thing for Katie and for James and for Kyla and for Thomas. So thank you for doing that. Keep on doing that. I think the things are not falling apart yet, besides the fact that we're going to have Father's Day breakfast. Or actually, we had Father's Day breakfast. <laughs> this morning. Um, we're doing pretty well, I think. Well, last week we started a new series on the book of James. Uh, the book of James is a short book, only has five chapters. You can literally read it in like 15 minutes to half an hour. And I've encouraged the people that are in our small group to read it at least once from the beginning to the end in one shot. Now, obviously, the sooner you do this, the more benefit you will have of it as you move through this series. But Pastor Aaron kicked it off last week, and he mentioned how much he likes this book. He said that he really likes the proverb kind of structures, these nuggets of wisdom, these applicable things that you can work with and you can sink your teeth in. It touches still on a lot of things that are relevant for us today, things like inequality and how you speak with one another. But I have to admit that I do not like this book. <laughs> it really makes me uncomfortable. It is an uncomfortable book. I, there are times that I literally squirm in my seat when I read certain passages in this book. Because in the next chapters, James will be suggesting things like literally giving the clothes of your back to others. To talk and treat everyone the same. And, I'm, and I mean everyone the same. He even goes as far as to encourage us to have the kind of faith and follow the example of Abraham who went as far as to sacrifice, willing to sacrifice his own son at the command of God. Now, I don't know about you, but this is uncomfortable stuff to me. I mean, this is stuff that makes me squirm, and I do think that this is somewhat of the intention of James when he writes this book. And I would argue that if by the end of the series, when we are done with this, when you have gone through seven weeks of this, you have not felt uncomfortable or challenged 
at least once, you have not been paying attention to what we have been talking about up here. So let's take a look at today's text. I'm in chapter 1 in the book of James, verses 18 to 27. I'll be reading it, and um, when I'm done, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can say, thanks be to God. But um, I'm actually starting in verse 18, not in verse 19, and we'll be reading till uh, 27. He chose, he being God, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruit of all he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely, merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion is that, uh, the re religion that our God, our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The word of the Lord. You see, the first thing that James does before he does anything else, the first thing that he does is he establishes the supremacy of the word of God. He establishes the supremacy of the book, of, of the word of God. You see, everything from here on out, all these practical applications, all his suggestions as to how we are to behave with each other, all the stuff that makes me so uncomfortable flows out of the fact that God's word stands above it all. See, the first thing that he points out about the word of God is that the word of God saves. In verse 18, if you have your Bibles open and with, with you, in verse 18, he tells his audience that God gives birth through the word. Obviously, going back to the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where Jesus is explaining that we have to be born again. It is through the word that we are saved. In verse 20, he tells us to humbly accept the word that can save you. Now, just a little side note here. The book of James was most likely the first book written in the New Testament. It's been dated somewhere around 45 to 48 AD. So when James talks about the word of God, there's two things that he has in mind. The first thing is all of the Old Testament revelation, the entire Old Testament. But the second thing that he has in mind is the person and the teachings of Jesus. So the person of Jesus and his teaching. 
Because most of us are familiar, right, with how the Gospel of John starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on in verse 14, and he says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So James is right off the bat affirming that salvation lays in the person and the teachings of Jesus. And that we can know him, not just know about him, but that we can know him through the word of God or the Bible. Now, up to this point, James and the majority of Christian churches today, Western Christian churches today, are in harmony. But I think from this point on, things start to deviate a little bit. Because a lot of people in the church today have bought into the idea or are thinking that salvation is our end goal. That salvation is our end goal, the the destination, so to speak. But James, on the other hand, argues that this cannot be further from the truth. Salvation for him is not the is only the beginning. It's not the destination. It's the starting line. And from here on, to speak in Polinian terms, it's all about how well we run this race from this starting line on. And James tells us that the one thing that hinders us the most as we are running this race, the one thing that hinders us the most while we run this race is the fact that we do two things with the Word of God that significantly hinder the impact that the Word has on our lives. We diminish its power by doing this. And the two things that we do with the Word of God is we don't hear it or we're not listening to it, And when we hear it, we don't obey it. It's very simple. So let's take a look at the first point. We do not listen or we do not hear. Now, most of us are familiar with verse 19, right? Be quick to listen, be slow to speak, and be slow to become angry. This is most of the time referred to in a human-to-human context as an encouragement to let others speak first before we give our opinion, to underscore the importance of listening to one another. I have seen this verse appear many times in marriage counseling books. And the truth is that many marriages, including my own, greatly benefit from applying this principle. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Be slow to become angry. Because oftentimes, right, when we are in an argument, we are so consumed with getting our own point across that we totally fail to listen to what the other person has to say. And before you know, you're fighting about something and you realize that you don't even remember what all the fuss is about to begin with, right? I mean, am I the only one who ends up sometimes in a situation like that? You see, Stephen R. Kofi wrote a book. It's called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and he writes that most people do not listen with the intent to understand, but they listen with the intent 
to reply. They do not listen with the intent to understand, but with the intent to reply. To the newlyweds in this audience, and Pastor Aaron mentioned last week that a long and very busy wedding season has finally come to an end with the wedding of Jacob and Fatima. To all of you, I would encourage and would stretch the importance of this verse. Be quick to listen and be slow to speak and slow to get angry. It can not only save your marriage, it can actually make it flourish. The thing is, though, that James does not use this verse this way. It's a great proverb to use this way, but that's not how James intends it. James does not use this as a proverb to describe or to better human-to-human relationships, regardless on how valuable that may be. What James does is he uses them as an instruction for our relationship with God. You see, he encourages us to be quiet before God. He encourages us to talk less to God. He encourages us not to become angry with God. Because our tendency is that we rather talk than listen. We make this about us rather than about him. We want to prove our points instead of understanding and listening to his. You see, the attitude that we have with other people is the same attitude that shows up in our relationship with God. A couple of years ago, maybe a decade ago, uh, Josefina and I actually moved for a while to Santa Paula. We had just bought a house. We were actually uh, newlyweds at that time, and we had bought a house. And Josefina was working at that time still in Santa Barbara. She she made the commute every day. And after a while, that became pretty dreadful. Um, So decided to look for a job in Santa Paula. At that time, we decided to pray about it. And we were like, Lord, we don't want this to be just a job. We want this to be a place of ministry where she can really serve you. And lo and behold, she got an offer from the Boys and Girls Club in Santa Paula, which was a really clear thing of where she could be working with kids who most of them came out broken families, where she could really uh, work with them and, 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 and extend the love of Christ and really being the salt and the light of the earth. So we thought, God, this is great. Thanks for blessing us this way. So she was about to uh, accept, and another offer came in. And it was more in line with her career field as it has been developing so far. It had a lot better benefits. It had a lot bigger salary. And we started talking first among each other. And I told Josefina, I said, this is such a blessing of the Lord. We'll be able to save some money. We'll be able to prepare ourselves for when kids arrive. We will be able to put a bigger down payment on our house. Surely this must be of the Lord. So Josefina took that job. About a month she started coming home crying. And Josefina is an extremely easy person. I mean, to get her crying, that, that really takes, takes things. And what the, some of the stories that she described was just plain old meanness, malice, not just high expectations, but totally unreasonable expectations. And at the end, we just came to the point to say, you have to quit. So 
She quit. But in that process, we had to come to terms with the fact that we were first listening to just each other. And we were doing really all the talking to God. And as we were talking about how much we wanted this and how good this would be for our family and how better off we would be in this arrangement, we talked so much that we, in the process, muted his voice altogether to the point where we were unable to hear it. Now, I'm pretty sure that this scenario in some kind of shape has played out in your life as well, right? Where your will and your dreams and your plans and your passion and your desires led you to a point where you did all the talking and God's voice became more and more muted. David, uh, Henry David Thoreau writes, it takes two to speak the truth. One to speak and one to listen. You see, the principle of slowing down our speaking and speeding up our listening is important when the two parties are equal. But it is even more important when one of the parties happens to be God. You know, sometimes we go even further and we turn the table altogether and we become angry with God because we feel that He is not listening to us. A couple of months ago, Pastor James did a series on the prophet Elijah. I don't know if you remember. The dreadful thing of any pastor is that you only remember 5%. I get it because most of the time I'm in the audience. But he actually did a series on the prophet uh, Elijah. And um, at one point, this was right after the massive showdown that he had with the prophets of Baal, right? It was him against all these guys and marvelous thing happened. And Jezebel, the evil queen, puts a death threat on his head. And Elijah just takes off and he starts running. And he starts to complain. This sucks. I want to die. <laughs> they are trying to kill me. And I am the only one left. And God moves in and it's almost like he is saying, can I get your attention, Elijah? Let me, let me just send you a big wind. Let me send you some fire and let me send you an earthquake so that you get out of this talking to me and finally listen to me. And when he finally does, God tells him, Elijah, you are not the only one. There is 7,000 more of you. If you just be quiet for a moment and listen to me, I will tell you where you are, what your position is, and what I want you to do. You see, listen to God. Listen to God. I, I don't know how much plainer I can tell you this. Listen to God. So for the coming week, I really want to encourage you to do a couple of things. I want you to encourage you to read his word. I mean, I know it's an old thing. Every time when you come to the Bible, somebody's preaching on how you need to read your Bible more. But I really want to encourage you to do it. The book of James is a perfect place to start. Yes, it will make you uncomfortable, but it's a fantastic book to start. But when you do, don't, don't argue with it. Don't, don't argue with it. Don't come up with reasons why this applies to all the other people in the church, but not to you. <laughs> Listen to what he's trying to tell you. 
I also would encourage you to be quiet. Practice this. In your prayer times, just pray half of the time. If your prayer time is 10 minutes, be quiet for five. And I would encourage you to make that quiet part the first part. Listen first, then talk. Try to understand, to God, uh, try to understand God before you reply to him. And let him speak truth into your life. It's a wonderful exercise. The last thing that James points out is when you do this, make sure that your line of communication with God is clear. I don't know if you read that, verse 21. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is prevalent, James writes. Because the thing is, being in sin, and especially continuous, unrepented sin, is like driving into a tunnel with the radio on. Within a couple of yards, there is nothing but static and white noise left. So the first thing that James identified that greatly diminishes the power of the Word of God in our lives is the fact that we don't listen to it and we don't hear it. The second thing is the second reason that James gives is our failing to obey the word of God. Now, now obviously, these two follow each other in chronological order, right? I mean, you cannot do the word of God without knowing the word of God, without listening to the word of God. But it is very well possible to know and even to understand, but not to do, not to obey I would go so far as to argue that one of the biggest enemies in the church in the United States right now is that we fail to obey the word of God. We listen, we understand, but we don't do. And James tells us very clearly that in doing so, we are deceiving ourselves. He likens us to people who are looking in the mirror, who turn around and forget completely what we look like. That's a sad state to be in. I mean, he tees it up pretty clearly for us. He really gives us two options. And he says, do you want to be deceived or do you want to be blessed? Verse 25, do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be deceived or do you want to be blessed? The choice is up to you. The answer hinges on obedience. I have two kids. Most of you guys know that. One is six. The other one is eight. And I'm sure this never happens in your house. I'm sure everything is nicely organized and all their toys are in their place. Their clothes are nicely hung up and their bed is made in the morning. The problem is that's not our household. If this is your household, I would love to send my child to get taught by you for a, for a week. So if you are that kind of parent, see me and uh, you can train and coach mine for a little while. I have, to, I have to ask Tara so many times that she is starting to get frustrated with me. So this is kind of how a typical uh, conversation goes. I, I come into the house, and yes, I tell her first, how was your day, and stuff like that. But fairly quickly, I move on. I say, Tara, your room is a mess. Can you do something about it? She says, I know, Daddy. I said, when are you going to take care of it? I said, I think by the afternoon. So the afternoon comes, the afternoon goes. I'll go into the room. Still mountains of stuff. So I'm asking her again. I said, Tara, can you please clean your room? And she's like, I know that. I know. <laughs> it's like, is that cutting it? I mean, 
That, that, I, that, that's not just me, right? I mean, that's not good enough, is it? I mean, yes, she knows to clean a room, but I want, I want her to show that she knows by doing it, not by just telling me that she knows. I, I want a clean room. Is that too much to ask? But likewise, I don't think that God is particularly amused when we tell him as a church in the United States. We, 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 we know the Great Commission, Lord. We know that you ask us to go. We know that you ask us to teach the gospel. We know that you ask us to go and baptize people in the name of the Son, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We know, Lord, but yet, at the same time, only 4% of the churches in the United States gives birth to a new church. 4% of the churches in the United States gives birth to a new church. Can you imagine what would happen to our populations if only 4% of the women gave birth to children? What would happen to the next generation? It'd be gone in no time. On a, to make this on a little bit more personal, on a personal level, how many of you, how many of us have shared their faith with an unbeliever in the last year. How many of us? And it doesn't stop there. There's a survey being done on a regular basis. It's called the Barnes Survey. It's a survey that a lot of Christians look, like, look, look at because it's a survey that should show some differences between believers and non-believers. But, you know, if you look at things like the divorce rate, 27% among uh, Christians, 23% among non-Christians. That's, that's not very encouraging giving money to a homeless person, money or resources to a homeless person or a very poor person in the past year. Born-again Christians did this 24% of their time. Non-Christians, 34%. Taking drugs or medications for depression in the past year. Born-again Christians, 7%. Non-Christians, 8%. Donated Money to a nonprofit organization that includes the church, that is tithing included, 47% for born again Christians, 48% for non Christians. Attending a community meeting on local issues in the past year, born again Christians, 37%, non Christians, 42%. Satisfied with your life today. 69% born-again Christians, 68% non-Christians. I mean, there, there really is no difference here. Let's not fool, fool ourselves, right? I mean, this looks the same. And I think, according to James, this means that we are deceiving ourselves on a massive scale in the church today. Because we know, but we don't do. And by not doing, we are missing out and we're depriving ourselves of the blessings of God. So if you are stuck in your spiritual walk, if you are feeling that you're not blessed or hopelessly inadequate, maybe even, if your Christian life is unimpressive, I would suggest that most likely... This has to do with you not obeying the word of God. 
Now, this sounds maybe strange from a guy, but I will come to some of the, from our practices. But I, I really feel strongly about this. I really feel like we are failing to do the word of God. And this is not rocket science, guys. This is not difficult. The Bible is full of ways that we can serve the Lord. It really is. I mean, if, if, if you haven't picked up on any, let me give you some, exa- some examples that are coming literally out of the Bible. You can feed the hungry. You can clothe the naked. You can visit the prisoners. You can attend to the sick. You can welcome the foreigner. You can help the abused. You can give a drink to the thirsty. You can comfort the dying. You can sustain the addicted. You can visit the lonely. And on and on it goes. You see, you don't need a PhD in theology to start doing these things. You really don't. You don't need to know all of the Bible before you can start obeying. I mean, we don't raise our kids that way, right? We just expect you to obey when we teach you all that we know. My kids would love that. They're like, great, we're off. I mean, who does that, right? The way we raise kids is we teach you something and then we ask you to obey. It's no different in our walk with the Lord. Start obeying the things that you understand. Don't get too worked up about the things that you don't understand yet. It's very, the book of James is extremely simple. I, I mean, he's saying it, laying it out plain to us. He finishes this section by saying reminding us that the religion that is acceptable and pleasing to God is to look after orphans and widows and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To look after orphans and widows and by keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. Acceptable religion... And the word religion, what he means here, is more like almost rituals, acceptable rituals, or the things we do as a church. Acceptable religion to God, according to James, is not coming to church on Sunday. See that? It is not partaking in Bible studies. It is not coming to Sunday school. And trust me, both these things are very dear to my heart, like anyone knows. But he did not put that in here. It is not singing worship songs. And it's not even taking communion. Now, I am not arguing that these rituals are not very, very important in the life of a believer. I would say they're extremely important. Please be here every Sunday. Take all the communion you can get. Be at every Bible study you can be. But rather, James tells us that there is one defining ritual that should mark the church. One defining ritual that should mark the church, and that is taking care of people who cannot take care of themselves. It is taking care of people that cannot take care of themselves. That's what he's saying when he says take care of orphans and widows. In a moment, I'm going to ask uh, Deborah Hemrick to come up for a, for a moment. Most of you um, know that Deborah has done a ton of stuff in and for our church. I mean, she led children's, she's leading children's church. She has served for many years here in our church as the local NMI president. She was the board secretary for many years, only to move on and to become an NMI president for the district, the Los Angeles District Church of the Nazarene. And in that role, she organizes conferences, she organizes mission trips, 
She speaks regularly at local churches all throughout the district, and that's one of the reasons why you don't see her here as often on Sundays as you used to, because she's off speaking at other churches. I just want you to know that Deborah's work for the church is not her full-time job. As a matter of fact, she just has a regular eight-to-five job, like many of us. And all the work that she does for our church is also not the reason why I asked her to come and talk to us for a moment. Because besides her regular job, and besides all the work that she does for our denomination, her main ministry, or maybe to speak in terms of James, her main religion, or her main ritual, is to work with the homeless in Santa Barbara. So Deborah, would you, would you be so kind to come up and maybe grab this microphone as well? only one button on there. Hello? Is this on? So, Deborah, can you, can you do us a favor and can you explain a little bit about what you are doing with the homeless in Santa Barbara and what an average week looks like for you? Sure. So I made some notes because, you know, Danny said seven to ten minutes and this could just go on forever. So I do have a priority in the streets and my first priority is the most vulnerable. And so, and they become a priority because our goal is to see that no one dies in the streets. And so, there, once I'm working that priority through, and my age range in the streets is two years old to about 86 years old. And so, my first goal out there is a safe place to sleep each night. That could be safe parking if they have an automobile, and that could be a shelter, or that could just be the best camp that they fit into. You know, maybe they're not in a safe one. Maybe I have other friends out there that will help me roll them into their camp. And so then I like to find out what their day looks like. You know, maybe I could get them into the fellowship club, which is for people who have a mental illness. Maybe I could get them into the Jody House, which is a place for people with traumatic brain injuries. You know, so maybe I can just get them to the women's clinic. You know, maybe just into the library where I can help them find books to read and that kind of stuff. So then... Um, after that, I need to find out what kind of identification they have. Do they have medical insurance? Do we need to make a doctor's appointment? Do they just want me to escort them? So sometimes we just need to sit and talk for a long time. And so all of this to say that um, we need to spend a couple of hours together each week to just develop a friendship and some kind of a relationship of trust. And ultimately, are there any family members that they'd like to regain contact with and that might be looking for them? And so we just kind of um, work together to build a relationship. Most people um, I've known for five to ten years now, most people I meet with two to three times a week on a regular basis, and our ultimate goal is permanent housing. So what does my week look like? Um, you know, my week starts today. And because one thing that is really important to know is that even though um, permanent housing is our goal, that, you know, that's a whole new journey for people. People who have lived in the streets for anywhere from 2 to 15 years have a whole new um, adventure that starts when they begin housing. Today, when I leave church, I'll head over to, um, to a senior housing complex where I'll meet with a woman who's 75 and who was living in her car and a woman who's 63 and who was living in the streets. 
and we'll work through what their week's going to look like next week. And I'll meet with them two or three times next week. My friend who's 63 has dementia. And so I'm learning how to teach her. So I take classes to learn those things. I take mental health classes and I take drug and alcohol classes just to try to work with my friend that I've met. Uh, to, my day starts at 5.45 except for Fridays. It starts at 5 a.m. and it ends about 8 at night. And my lunch breaks are scheduled from 2 to 3 intentionally so that I can escort people to doctor's appointments, to the DMV, to you know, just different places like that. Sometimes it's just to sit for an hour to encourage them. My friend Nathaniel's, we set goals, and my friend Nathaniel's goal is to call his dad. And sometimes we've met three times now and had lunch together and just prayed and talked about that moment that he is going to call his dad. And my experience has been so far in the past five years that those phone calls will happen and they do happen. And so um, tomorrow morning, I will be at the recycling center before work, where I'll catch up with a couple of people that are always there. And at 2 o'clock, I'll be escorting a friend of mine to the Jody house, where we're taking classes together. And his ultimate goal is that um, I've been working with restorative policing. Mm -hmm. And my friend Larry and I will take a few classes at Jody house. And then Officer Hove and I will be taking him to a place in Los Angeles where he will be receiving permanent housing. So it's just an interesting week. Mm -hmm. Every week is interesting. Um, I think that you guys can relate to Katie Kempler's situation right now. So a lot of times my week is just helping, picking people up from the hospital, finding a safe place for their recovery, yeah. because they too need these things that you know, we take for granted. Now Deborah, what? tell us a little bit about why you do this. I mean, well, there, there, there's a lot going on in your week. I mean, you're, you have your own kids. I mean, so they've moved out now, but oh, you, you, got, you got your job. <laughs> I mean, why are you doing what you're doing? So there's, there's those wonderful things that happen. I, I get these great opportunities from this as well. For, for example, um, just recently, um, I, had this I get a lot of speaking opportunities. And I have this email that I want to read you that explains these moments, these just wonderful God moments, these wonderful miracle moments. Just recently, I was asked to assist with a um, project that Laguna Blanca School is doing. You know, a lot of times it's Westmont or it's, you know, basically a Christian organization, but Laguna, Laguna Blanca is just a private school. You know, it's just, it's a great school, but they've decided to do a study on empathy. And there'll be an article in The Independent. There'll be all these great things about it. And yesterday, I received an email. And so I've been speaking at their school and taking some of their teams out in the streets. And these are the moments that happen every day that really matter. This young girl, after each event, they have to fill out a survey. And these surveys are being put in a database. And at the end of the year, this data will mean something to somebody. But this young girl sent this email of her survey in, and it was forwarded back to me with a note that said, we just want to thank you for your help, and we thought you really wanted to see this answer to question number nine. Question number nine, has the experience of homeless outreach changed you personally? And this 14-year-old girl writes back, yes, yesterday was the first time that I have ever prayed. I'm not a religious person and have only been to church once. 
when I was little and I don't remember it. It was awesome that in the middle of everything, the homeless guy wanted to have a prayer circle. So we sat there and prayed for well-being and for God to guide us in the right way. At first, I was thinking, how weird this is and what's going on? Because I've never done anything like this. But I listened to what he was saying, and I was truly inspired. He is really devoted to God and prays for everyone to have a good life. For someone like me, who doesn't think about God, to meet someone like him, who is devoted to the Lord, opened my eyes. I'm glad I was there. So this is a young girl that not only can we pray for, but do you notice how her tone changes from God to the Lord? And I just know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to her. And so every day, I just experience moments of people meeting Christ, of families being reunited. Mm. Every day, every day, I see small miracles happen in somebody's life. Amen. So, so last but not least, my last question for you, Deborah, is, you, you know, we often think about when we do, um, when we serve the Lord or when we do these things, we think about the benefit of the recipient, right? The person who was homeless and now gets to move in to a, to a new house, or the person who had, was sick and now gets to be taken care of by the doctor. But I believe that when James writes these words to us, when he encourages us to serve, that he is not just doing that for the sake of the recipient, but that there is something that happens in our own lives when we make ourselves available for that kind of service. Can you talk to us a little bit about how your work with the homeless has shaped you and changed you and, and, and the spiritual impact that it has made on your life? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it, it's, it's a challenging question, but the, the one thing that I know for sure is there really is the peace that passes all understanding. There really is that peace in your life. There really is that moment when you're standing in the midst of so much and you realize that the peace of Christ is just right there surrounding you. Mm. There is that time when, you know, my life changed. I don't know how many years ago it was, Danny, but we were doing a Bible study called Experiencing God. Blackaby. And it was, was it 13 years ago? Was it 14 years ago? And that is when I knew at that point in time that everything in my life had changed. And so when you are placed in a situation where God is already at work and you're just in the middle of that situation, you're surrounded by nothing but Christ and by that peace and by that love. And so you're always in those moments where God is at work and where Jesus is at work. And so the peace that you have in your life and the things that are no longer important and that no longer matter. And so the kind of love that you're experiencing out there is not the kind of love you experience from being a father Mm. or a husband or anything else. I, I told James that I know for sure that when I was standing on Skid Row last Sunday that I had the same love for the people I was standing next to as I had for the moment I was standing in Katie Kinsler's room. And so I don't know how to put that into words. I just know that that's what I'm blessed to be able to experience. Amen. Thanks, Deborah. Thank you so much.
Now, people in the, in the Catholic tradition call this touching the life of Christ. I mean, they go as far as to say when you touch people in need, whether they are lepers or sick people, that you actually are touching the body of Christ. Now, I don't think that we have maybe gone a little bit away from that in our um, evangelical traditions. But the reality is, is when you see this kind of love taking place, something, something mystical is happening. There, isn't, there is no denying. And James is telling us that if you want a truly full life in Christ, if you want to live out loud, then this is a part that needs to be part of, your, of, of, of what you do and who you are. And I'm not going to tell you that you need to come less to church so you can do these kind of things. But I am telling you that this is a part of the Christian diet that needs to be part of who you are because otherwise you're missing out. I mean, if you see these kind of things, if you listen, you see the, the Spirit of God is already at work in the world. We just have to join Him there. I think that's what you're saying, right? So if you feel like, yeah, this is something I, I want to partake in. This is something that I, that I want to do. Then there's, there's people in our, in our congregation that do this, like Rolf does this at the rescue mission all the time. Talk to him. See how you can plug in, how you can volunteer. Talk to, talk to Deborah. I mean, I'm sure there's other places where you can go. It really doesn't matter what you're doing. I'm not going to tell you, hey, you need to check in at 9 o'clock and you need to do this, this, and this. But what I am telling you is if you don't do this, there is a very big chance that you're deceiving yourself in your Christian life. And I would hate for you, I would hate for that to, to, to happen. You see, Mother Teresa, who probably embodies this more than anybody else, says, the love that God gives you, the love that you just talked about, the love that God gives you is not to be kept under lock and key, but it is to be shared because the more you save it, the less you will be able to give it. And the less you have, the more you will be able to share. Let's pray. Lord, we just, uh, we just want to thank you for being here with us today. You, Lord, you know that my desire is not to make people feel guilty this morning. And oftentimes that is where things are turning to when we talk about serving and doing the work of the Lord. But, but my desire for myself, for my children, for my wife, for the people in this church is that we may partake in the blessings that you promise us when we obey your word. Lord, I want to ask you to forgive us for the times where we have maybe spent a little too much time in studying your word and talking to each other and just being together and failed to recognize that you are a God that is first and foremost interested in expanding the blessings and the kingdom of God beyond the borders of this church. Lord, I don't know what this looks like for each and every individual in this room. That is something between you, God, and them to work that out whether they need to be working in, with the homeless or they need to be working in, for the environment or who knows what that may be. 
I'm trusting, Lord, that you will speak to all of us on an individual level and that you will let us know where you can plug us in. But I do pray, Lord, that we make ourselves available, that we don't come up with the excuses as to why this is not for us. Because, Lord, we want that kind of radical obedience that James describes in his book. So, Lord, will you take this church, will you take my life, and will you work in a way that you worked in Deborah's life 13 years ago when she did this Bible study? Help us, Lord, to see the world through your eyes. And help us to really become masters in this one ritual, this one religion that trumps any other thing, and that is to take care of those who cannot take care of themselves. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.